Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome. <laughs> welcome to this Sunday morning service here at Essex Church and to this, our gathered community of Kensington Unitarians. Ours is a community created by all who walk through our doors. And together, I think we create an oasis of calm in the midst of a busy city. A place where we can rest a while, recharge our batteries, take time to reflect and consider the voice of the Spirit. So let's take a moment now to quieten and settle ourselves, bringing the whole of ourselves to this time and to this place, reminding ourselves that here we can be who we truly are. There's no need to keep up appearances or pretend. Here we can acknowledge our brokenness, the many ways that we will have been wounded in life. And here we can nurture our hopes and our dreams, our yearning for a world of justice and equality, compassion and love. And here we can learn to accept the imperfections of others alongside our own, together in this community of life and of love. And I'm lighting our chalice this morning, this symbol of our worldwide Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist community, in recognition of Mothering Sunday and in praise of all those who have nurtured us in life through fundamental acts of care and of love. And because of that care, we are here today. And we too then nurture others, all part of a great circle of reciprocity and connectedness. Welcome. Welcome to you all. And I'm bidding a particular welcome this sunny Sunday morning to the Reverend Bill Darlison, who's going to be leading most of our worship here today. This year's president of our Unitarian General Assembly and, of course, to Morag, Bill's partner. Together over the last year, you two have travelled the length and breadth of our land, visiting congregations, attending meetings and generally rallying us all to care about and nurture this movement of ours. It's good to have you with us. When you, um, when you have the president to visit, you can expect to be challenged. And uh, so I did have to just check what a midrash was, <laughs> which is the next item on our order of service. A midrash is a, a, a Jewish teaching on a biblical text. And this is the delight. It is... The parable of the serpent, and it starts with a, um, a quotation from the book of Genesis. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. But now wander with me, if you will, into a development on the Garden of Eden story, where there isn't just one or two people made by God. No, God made a bunch of us, because God wanted us to have lots of fun. And God said, you cannot really have fun unless there's a whole gang of you. 
So God put us in this playground place called Eden and told us to enjoy. And at first we had fun, just as God expected. We played all the time and rolled down hills and waded in streams. We climbed in the trees and we swung on the vines and ran in the meadows. We frolicked in the woods. We hid in the forest and just plain acted silly and we laughed a great deal. Then one day, this serpent told us that we weren't really having fun because we weren't keeping score. We didn't even know what score was. And when he explained it, we still didn't see the point. But he said he would give an apple to the one who was best at play. And we'd just never know who was the best if we didn't keep score. Well, we could see the point of that. And each of us was sure of being the best at play. Things were different from then on. We yelled a lot. We didn't laugh so much. We had to make up new scoring rules for the games we played. And games like frolicking, where we stopped playing altogether because it is hard to keep score when you're frolicking. And by the time God found out about our fun, we were spending 45 minutes a day in actual playing and the rest of the time working out the score. God was very upset about that and said we couldn't use the garden anymore if we didn't stop keeping score. And God shouldn't have gotten upset just because it wasn't the kind of fun God had in mind. But God just wouldn't listen and kicked us out and said we couldn't come back until we stopped keeping score. And to rub it in, or rather get our attention, God told us we were all going to die anyway and our score wouldn't mean anything. But God was wrong. My cumulative all-game score is 16,548 and a half. And that means a lot to me. And if I can raise my score to 120,000 before I die, I know I'll have accomplished something in my life. And even if I can't, my life has a lot of meaning now because I've taught my children to score really high. And perhaps they'll be able to reach 200,000 or even 300,000. Really, it was life in Eden that didn't mean anything. Fun's great in its place, but without scoring, there's no reason for it. If you ask me, God has a very superficial view of life, and I'm sure glad my children are out being reared away from God's influence. We were lucky to get out. We're all very grateful for what the serpent has taught us. Let us pray. Everywhere is the green of new growth, the amazing sight of the renewal of the earth. We watch the grass once again emerging from the ground. We notice the bright green atop the dark green on the pine, the fir, the hemlock, the spruce, the cedar. The old plum trees still blossom, leaf, and give forth fruit. Everywhere and always the song of birds, bees raiding the orchard, raccoon prowling at nightfall, the earthworm tunneling the garden, chickens and rabbits pecking and nibbling, the goats tugging to reach new delights. All are the ubiquitous energies of life. O God, may we today be touched by grace, 
fascinated and moved by this your creation, energized by the power of new growth at work in the world. May we move beyond viewing this life only through a frame, but touch it and be touched by it, know it and be known by it, love it and be loved by it. May our bodies, our minds, our spirits learn a new rhythm, paced by the rhythmic pulse of the whole created order. May spring come to us, be in us, and recreate life in us. May we forge a new friendship with the natural world and discover a new affinity with beauty and with life. Amen. The second reading is taken from a science fiction novelist called Terry Bisson, and I've not really heard anything more about him except this little piece that I'm going to read. Um, I came across the piece in another book that was quoting it, um, and I think the author of that book said he didn't know much about Terry Bisson either, but I googled him and got a few facts, but they're not that relevant. This is, it's called Thinking Meat, and it's really a meditation on what it means to be a human being. An alien explorer, just returned from an Earth visit, is reporting to his commander. They're made out of meat. Meat? There's no doubt about it. We picked several from different parts of the planet, took them aboard our recon vessels and probed them all the way through. They're completely meat. That's impossible. What about the radio signals, the messages to the stars? They use the radio waves to talk, but the signals don't come from them. The signals come from the machines. So who made the machines? That's who we want to contact. They made the machines. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Meat made the machines. That's ridiculous. How can meat make a machine? You're asking me to believe in sentient meat. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. These creatures are the only sentient race in the sector and they're made out of meat. Well, maybe they're like the Orphali, you know, a carbon-based intelligence that goes through a meat stage. Nope. They're born meat and they die meat. We studied them for a several of their lifespans, which didn't take too long. Do you have any idea of the lifespan of meat? Spare me. Okay, well, maybe they're only part meat, you know, like the Wedeli, a meat head with an electron plasma brain inside. Nope, we thought of that since they do have meat heads, like the Wedeli, but I told you, we probed them. They're meat all the way through. No brain. Oh, there's a brain, all right. It's just that the brain is made out of meat. So, what is the thinking? You're not understanding, are you? The brain does the thinking. The meat. Thinking meat. 
You're asking me to believe in thinking meat. Yep, thinking meat, conscious meat, loving meat, dreaming meat. The meat is the whole deal. If ever you're in a restaurant in Israel, and I never have been in a restaurant in Israel, not yet, but I intend to go pretty soon. Once the presidency is over, Morrigan and I have lots of plans. Whether we will fulfill them or not is another matter, but Israel is on the list. I've been learning Hebrew for the past however many years, and I want to try it. But if you're ever in a restaurant in Israel, at the end of the meal, you will ask for the Heshbon. Heshbon. Heshbon is the bill, the reckoning up. And interestingly, the word Heshbon appears in the Hebrew Bible, but not, of course, in relation to restaurants. In the book of Numbers, anybody read the book of Numbers? Numbers, Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, as they're called. It's one of those books, when I was teaching religious studies in a Catholic school, we had these red Bibles, and it had different print sizes for whether the editors of the book thought that the different pieces were important or not. And so, things like the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels and everything, they were in nice big print. Book of Genesis, nice big print. But the book of Numbers, tiny print. So it was there, it was complete. You know, the the whole Bible was complete. But if you saw small print, it was really saying, don't bother with this. Well, the book of Numbers almost entirely is in small print. So nobody really pays too much attention to it. But there is a story only found in the book of Numbers. Just before Moses and the children of Israel enter the promised land, They have to conquer two giants. One is called Og, the king of Bashan. And the other is called Sihon, the king of Heshbon. Heshbon, there's the word again. The word that modern Israelis use for the bill at the end of a meal. Now I'm quite aware, of course, that a great deal, if not everything, in the Bible is symbolic. But I'd never really thought about what the symbolism of this particular bit could mean. Until I came across a commentary recently by a Jewish writer. Heshbon, he says, represents the way we use logic and reason to work things out. It represents the process of adding things up, weighing up the odds, counting the costs. And a very valuable skill it is too. And we Unitarians have ever prided ourselves on our ability to use these very powers in our religious life. But notice, the story in the book of Numbers tells us that it's something that Moses had to conquer before they got into the promised land. Reckoning things up logically, although useful is not by itself enough. That's what the story is telling us. Maybe, like the Israelites, we have to be aware of the limitations of that process. 
But numbers and figures seem to captivate us. In chapter 4 of The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the author says to us, Grown-ups love figures. When you talk to them about a new friend, they never ask about essential matters. They never say to you, what does his voice sound like? What games does he prefer? Does he collect butterflies? They ask, how old is he? How many brothers does he have? How much does he weigh? How much money does his father earn? It's only then that they feel they know him. If you were to mention to grown-ups, I've seen a beautiful house built with pink bricks and geraniums on the windowsills and doves on the roof, they wouldn't be able to imagine such a house. You'd have to say to them, I saw a house worth two million pounds. And then they would exclaim, oh, how lovely. Indeed, we grown-ups do love figures. We love to add up and to multiply. We score ourselves in much the same way as the man in our first reading today. Which socio-economic bracket do we fall in? How much do we earn? What degree classification did we get? How many holidays do we take per year? What's the square footage of the house we live in? These we use as measures of our success in life, totting up the meaningless numbers to give us an overall score. Mr. Gove, we all love Mr. Gove, don't we? Mr. Gove, I've never known a man get as much opprobrium in my life, I don't think. No politician in my awareness, has, except maybe Mrs. Thatcher, has been hated quite so much as Mr. Gove. Anyway, recently he's told us that he wants to start to review the classification system of GCSEs. It used to be ABC. He wanted to be one, two, three. Now, I don't know why, what difference that's going to make, but he thinks it will make a difference. And of course, what does that tell you? I taught English for 20 years. And we used to have to grade GCSE papers. This was GCSE uh, many years ago. And when you're grading them, Grade, for a, someone to get a grade one, that was very important because it was considered to be the equivalent of an O-level. But how do you, what do you award a grade one to? Here you have a child with incredible imagination who really has a flair for language, but whose spelling and punctuation are really leaving a lot to be desired. But you'd have to give that child a one. You'd have to. But then you have the pedestrian, workman-like diligent person who's not got a great deal of flair but they can put the full stops in the right place and they know where to put a comma and maybe even a semicolon and uh, their spelling is really top notch you have to give them a one so when you see that one what does it represent what does it mean what does it really mean nothing more than that figure at the bottom of the bill means about the food you've just eaten what does that tell you 20 pounds, 500 pounds, whatever it might be. I, the best meal, one of the, and I, I, I'm not trying to insult you more, you've provided many beautiful meals for me over the years. But one of the best meals I ever had in my whole life was when I was about 10, and I went to see Featherstone Rovers playing Lee, a Lancashire team, 
in the third round of the Rugby League Cup. And Lancashire, we went over to Lancashire and where they eat pies. They eat pies in, you know, it's the home of pies. And we got some meat pies to eat on the way to the ground. And I can remember them still, nearly 60 years on. The best thing I've eaten in my whole life. And what did they cost? I don't know, sixpence, sevenpence of the old money. Totting up, weighing things up. Cost 500 pounds. Did I enjoy it? Probably not. You know, when you're really eating expensive meals, you're really thinking more about the cost than you are about the food. The son of a friend of mine was deliberating whether or not to move in with his girlfriend. And his mother said to him, in all seriousness, make two lists, she said. On the one, put all the advantages that moving in would give you. And on the other, all the disadvantages. And then make your assessment. Could there be anything more bloodless and heartless than this? Can we really live our lives on this kind of reckoning? Do you love the woman? Does your heart beat faster when you see her? Do you want to spend the rest of your life with her? These are the only questions he should be asking himself. And if he couldn't answer yes to them, she should have advised him to stay on his own. Henri Nguyen, the Catholic spiritual writer who died in 1996, wrote somewhere that none of the questions that matter in life can ever be answered by weighing up the pros and cons. Somebody would say, why do you love her? Why? Well, because I do. I mean, what re- I can't give you any reasons. I do. Or as they asked Henri Nguyen, why are you a priest? Because I have to be a priest. I have no other reasons. G.K. Chesterton, another Catholic writer, he said, if someone were to say to you, why do you believe in civilization over barbarism? What would you say? What can you say? You can't make a list. Virtually everything, everything points in that direction. Not just one or two things. Sometimes there can be no analysis, no prevarication. Sometimes our response to things has to be immediate and overwhelming. This was the conclusion of the great 16th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, who's probably best known for framing an argument for believing in God in the form of a bet. Do you know this Pascal's wager? Pascal said, you don't know whether to believe in God. Well, let me put it like this. Believing in God is better than not believing in God. If you believe in God, you'll probably lead a reasonable life. And if there is no God, what have you lost? You've led a reasonable life. People have liked you and nothing much lost. If there is a God, you've won a great deal. But if you don't believe in God, you may lead a good life. But when you die, if there is a God, you've lost a great deal. So therefore, on balance, said Pascal, it's better to believe than not believe. That was, his, that was his conclusion until one day when he was sitting alone in his study. He had this incredible religious experience. 
which completely transformed his life. So that he, he carried a little piece of paper round with him for the rest of his life, close to his heart, on which he described an encounter with what he said was the living God. And from that moment there was no totting up, weighing up the odds. He knew, Pascal knew, that's what he said. And he said, the heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of at all. The Guardian, of course we all read The Guardian, don't we? I've been trying to stop reading The Guardian for 15 years. I can't bring myself to do it. I can't. I'm kind of addicted to it and I'm, I'm sad that I'm addicted to it because I disagree with so many of the writers. The older I get, the more I disagree with The Guardian. But there's nothing... Morag won't even let me buy the Daily Telegraph. You know, if I, if I say I'm going to... You know, she says, what will people think? You know, if they see <laughs> but I'm trying. But it has a t-shirt for sale which lists the chemical ingredients of the human being. You've got it on the front of your, of your um, service sheet. There are the ingredients of the human being. You know, oxygen, 65%, carbon, 18.5, hydrogen, 9.5, nitrogen, 3.3, calcium, 1.5. And add them up, and you've got a human being. Now, it's a joke, I know. But there seems to be a serious tendency these days to reduce us to basic components, to put us in our place, so to speak. One scientist, a man called Dean Hamer, wrote some years ago that a human being, and this is a quote from him, a human being follows the basic law of nature, which is that we are a bunch of chemical reactions running around in a bag. A bunch of chemical reactions running around in a bag. Or, as someone else remarked, even more chillingly than that, we're just hairy bags of chemicals. Such a point of view, and it's expressed more and more, and I, I sometimes feel that, that people are trying to outdo each other in the way that they can demean the human being to make us meaningless and our lives meaningless. Marcus Chown, another science writer, writing in The Guardian some years ago, he said, We live on a tiny clod of cold clay in an insignificant corner of an infinite cosmos. A tiny clod of cold clay in an insignificant corner of an infinite cosmos. You've heard this kind of stuff, haven't you? You've heard this kind of stuff frequently. And of course, the simple facts would tend to support that theory. Recently I put into Google, how many stars are there in the universe? And I got this from a website called Universe Today. This is what it says. There are spiral galaxies out there with more than a trillion stars and giant elliptical galaxies with a hundred trillion stars. So how many galaxies are there? Well, according to astronomers, there are probably more than 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe, stretching out into a region of space 13.8 billion light years away from us in all directions. And so, if you multiply the number of stars in our galaxy by the number of galaxies in the universe, you get approximately 10 to the power 24 stars. That is 1 followed by 24 zeros. 
That is a septillion star. But there could even be more than that, says the writer. So add a couple more zeros, maybe an infinite number of zeros. The final line is, there's a lot of stars in the universe. And these figures are unsettling. Morag is always, whenever we are watching one of these programs, Morag is always unsettled by these kind of figures. And often we are overawed by them, frightened of them sometimes. And when we add in the figure for the age of the universe, 13.8 billion years, it's very easy to conclude, as the aforementioned Marcus Chown does conclude, that, and this again is his quotation, in the great scheme of things, our lives are of no importance whatsoever. This is what he said. This is his conclusion. In the great scheme of things, our lives are of no importance whatsoever. But if human beings are ultimately of no importance, then in a sense it doesn't matter what we do to each other. The serial killer Ted Bundy, who was responsible for the deaths of dozens of women in America in the 1960s and 70s, justified his actions with this comment. There are billions of people. What's one less person on the face of the earth anyway? And Stalin famously declared that The death of one person might be a tragedy, but the death of a million is just a statistic. These numbers are the heshbon of life. There's no getting away from them. They are like the percentages on the Guardian t-shirt. They're demonstrably true. I'm not saying they're untrue. They are true. But they're not the whole truth. Paradoxically, there is another truth about what it means to be a human being, but this doesn't come from the scientists, but from religious thinkers, who consistently stress that human life, despite its apparent insignificance, is infinitely precious. The world's spiritual traditions teach us that far from being expendable accidental products of blind natural forces we are uniquely precious beings the way the bible puts it made in the image of god intrinsic parts of the whole economy of the universe the psalmist in one of the most beautiful psalms psalm 139 he says talking to god for you created me in my inmost being You knit me together in my mother's womb. God knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And the writer of Psalm 8, as perplexed at the vastness of the universe as Marcus Chown or Dean Hamer, comes to the opposite conclusion from them. Psalm 8, another beautiful psalm. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is a human being that you are mindful of him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with honor and glory. This is the, if you like, the religious view. And this is why I feel We have to stress this. This is what distinguishes a religious movement from a secular movement, from a movement which is simply about, if you like, ultimately social work. That is not all we Unitarians are about. 
We are about affirming the absolute intrinsic beauty and uniqueness of the individual person against what looks like the numbers. But here's another number. Here's something curious that was on Facebook. Somebody posted it a few weeks ago. It said the human brain, the human brain is made up of 100 billion neurons. This is that three pound piece of thinking meat in your head. 100 billion neurons and nearly 100 trillion synapses. There are more connections in the brain than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, I don't know about you, and I know what it is customary these days, and chic these days, to say about us human beings, that we are accidental, might have beens and might not have beens, and that we all came out out of numerous accidents over billions and billions of years. I know that's the chic thing to say, but I don't believe it. I do not believe it. Now, I don't know what the answer is, but I don't believe that. There are more connections in your three pound of matter than there are stars in the Milky Way. This should give us pause for thought. We Unitarians have ever been alert to the numbers, to logic, analysis, rationality, what the psychologists call left-brain activity. But maybe we need to become more aware of the right side of our brain, the non-rational, imaginative, creative, intuitive side. Maybe like Moses and the children of Israel, we too need to conquer the giant of Heshbon. Not because numbers are unimportant, but because, as it has been wisely observed, not everything that counts can be counted. And not everything that can be counted counts. The Jews say that every human being should carry around two pieces of paper. On one it says, I am nothing but dust and ashes. But on the other it says, for my sake the whole universe was created. We live with this paradox. And our lives are impoverished if we forget one or other of these statements. Amen. Go in peace. Live simply, gently, at home in yourselves. Act justly. Speak justly. Remember the depth of your own compassion. Forget not your power in the days of your powerlessness. Do not desire to be wealthier than your peers and stint not the hand of charity. Practice forbearance, speak the truth or speak not. Take care of yourselves as bodies, for you are a good gift. Crave peace for all people in the world, beginning with yourselves. And go as you go, with the dream of that peace alive in your heart. Amen.